0: Today we are launching into a new sermon series in the book of Exodus, and I'm super excited for this. I've been studying and reading over the summer in this book and just excited to see uh, uh, this continuing story here today. And so I'm going to invite Jason Lin up, who is going to read uh, our passage uh, for us. So we are going to be in Exodus chapter 1. Obviously, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 14. So please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word. Exodus
1: chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the good people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work
0: as slaves. Thank you, Jason. Would you all pray with me as we approach God's word together? God, you are holy, you are perfect, you are just, you are mighty. All of these attributes of you we see revealed to us in your word. As we begin to step into this book, it was written so long ago, I pray that it would be a season for us as a people to reflect on your faithfulness. Your absolute power, that nothing can stand against you. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts our need of redemption. And I pray that as we as we trace the history of of the children of Israel through slavery in Egypt, to a time of wandering in the wilderness, to standing before your presence at Mount Sinai, the establishment of your tabernacle in which you would dwell with your people. I pray that all of these things would would point us to the true realities that we find ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So I pray that you would be with us in this. Let your spirit move in our hearts, in our minds. Let us know you more. Let us love you deeper. And let us be a people who recognize how much we've been loved by our creator so we commit this time and this series into your hands. Do with it as you please. Let your word go forth and accomplish its purposes. And we know that it will not return empty. And so we love you, Father. We cry out to you in dependence upon you alone. That's in the name of our Savior, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. If I was to ask you what your favorite maybe book series or movie franchise is, how would you answer? Um, a lot of different answers that could be given to that. I, I think we all know if Aaron was here this morning, he'd shout out Star Wars. But then, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of other great epic stories that have been told over the years. You think of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, as many of us as kids and even as adults have, have, have read those stories uh, some great movie series and franchises have been put out. You think of the Rocky movies, the, uh, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe that's put out 20-some movies in the last number of years. The, uh, I always liked the Jason Bourne series and, and, and watching through, through all everything that he went through. And then there, who, who could forget, Lord of the Rings, right? One of the greatest epic stories that's ever been told. In fact, I, I have a very good friend who, when I first met him, realized how, how big of a Lord of the Rings fan that he was. In fact, when, when we exchanged information, his, his email address was freak at gmail.com. And I, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, oh, maybe it's some like spiritual acronym, like loving others, trusting, uh, I, uh, freak. I don't know. But uh, eventually I, I asked him, hey, what is, what is a lotter freak? <laughs> and he finally was like, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings freak. And uh, he, he just loved the story, loved the movies. I think he even sat uh, with a friend in a, in a movie theater for like 12 hours watching the entire extended editions. Uh, he loved those movies so much. And, uh, I'll let him tell you, he is in our midst. <laughs> but uh, just a, a great epic story. You know, the Harry Potter series is another one of those, uh, but there's so many of these. And these, these movies, these books, these stories captivate us. They draw us in as we journey with the characters through these different times and seasons that they find themselves in. We watch them as they overcome new obstacles, as they build and cultivate relationships, as they work together to accomplish these seeming impossible tasks. And we begin as you as you watch one after another, you begin to identify with certain characters. You even wrestle with them in the choices that they have to make. And you begin to feel with them and emote with them in their struggles and to joy with them in their triumphs. They draw us in and they, they, they captivate us. And today we are launching into one of the greatest epic stories that has ever been told in the history of the world. And I don't think that's an overstatement. And maybe you've never been sh- spent much time in the book of Exodus. Maybe your view of Exodus is shaped more by Hollywood. A number of years ago, there was, what, the Ten Commandments that, that, that came out with Charlton Heston. Um, you know, ha- had some interesting things, but... Uh, um, you probably don't want to base your entire view of Exodus on that, book, on that movie. Then there was one more recently called Exodus, Gods and Kings, and you definitely don't want to uh, have that movie in mind when, when you're reading Exodus. But from the outset, as we launch into this book, I think it's crucial for us to understand and to realize that Exodus is not a standalone book or story, but it is part of a continuing series. Exodus, as you likely know, is the second book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, and they were originally viewed as a whole collection. They were not merely independent books, but they were a unified collection, and in many ways they functioned as the the founding documents for the nation of Israel. Israel. And so today, as we are just setting off down the path through this book, I want to I want to start by by just walking through three things. I want to set our course a little bit, I want to fix our guides, and then I want to just launch into the journey. So that's how we're going to track through this today, as we kind of introduce this book to us and begin this epic journey together. So first let us set our course. Anytime you start looking at any book of the Bible, there's a couple foundational questions that are usually helpful to ask. Namely, well who wrote this? And maybe when did they write it, or at least when was the time period at which they're they're writing from? Yeah. And it is my conviction that Exodus was originally composed by Moses. Though there may have been others that had their hand in the composition of things over the years, Moses was the original writer. There are multiple internal references within the book of Exodus itself that that refer to Moses writing down the words that God delivered to them. Furthermore, other Old Testament books, when they reference the Pentateuch in these books, they attribute it to Moses. And furthermore, then in the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers and even Jesus Referring back to the Old Testament and to the Pentateuch, to Exodus, they identify it as a book of Moses. One clear example of that is is in Mark 12, 26, where, where Jesus is reminding them and says, Hey, do you guys remember what is written in the book of Moses? And then he goes on to say, Hey, and then he specifies which part he's talking about. He says, I'm referring to the part about the bush. The part about the burning bush, we see he's talking about Exodus and Jesus attributes it to and as the book of Moses. So I believe that Moses wrote this book and it's been preserved and handed down to God's people over the centuries. But when was this book written or at least when did the events of the Exodus occur? Now This is a little more difficult to to nail down. There are two time periods that are debated amongst scholars. Some of them set forth a later date, around 1260 BC. Remember, we're working in BC, so we're going in the opposite direction. The later date, around 1260. And this is defended by the reference to the cities that we read here in in chapter 1, verse 11, of Pithom and Ramses. And if if those are uh, related to a specific ruler in Egypt, then that could, could be a temporal marker for us of the time around 1260 when Ramses uh, the se- first and Ramses the second ruled in Egypt. But the other date is an earlier one at around 1446 BC, and that's defended by a reference to First Kings chapter 6, and there it, it gives us a, a reference to the exodus happening a certain number of years before the time of the rule of King Solomon. Based on astronomy and all the history that we have, we have a pretty good ability to, to nail down when Solomon ruled. And so if you backtrack that based on the years, if they're literal years, then we get back to 1446. And so there's been a lot of debate over, over which of these periods they fit in, looking at archeological evidence and all these things. Um, I tend to land on the 1446, the, the earlier date, uh, based on kind of the, the evidence that is there. But I do believe that both time periods are plausible. And at the end of the day, I don't know that it ultimately matters all that much. Certainly in the realm of apologetics and as as we understand these things to be historical events. But in terms of the purpose of the book, Moses, the, 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 the the, the Old Covenant community, was not specifically concerned with those nuanced details. If they were, they would have made it much more explicit. But as much as Exodus does recount... The history of the nation of Israel, it was not written as a historical textbook for us, such as we think of our more modern history. And Genesis and Exodus have much more of a theological purpose than a mere historical focus. And if you would like to dig deeper into these things, I have just a couple uh, uh, resources I'd love to share with you. Um, if, you if you really want to dig into the dating of, of, of the Book of Exodus and the writing and all. Um, there's a there was there was a podcast called, by Michael Heiser called the Naked Bible Podcast. I think it's a great name. So uh, Michael Heiser, Naked Bible, he actually is doing a series. He did a series through the Book of Exodus, and he deals in detail. If you want to get into kind of the nerdy, real in-depth uh, wrestle through this, then there was also a documentary that was put out a few years back um, called Patterns of Evidence: Exodus. And I don't think it's a slam dunk in terms of everything it sets forth, but it does set forth kind of a plausible argument based on archaeological evidence and everything that's found. Really intriguing can at least introduce you to kind of the, the what's going on within uh, kind of the background of Exodus and the things that historically and archaeologists have been wrestling with for a lot of years. So, uh, patterns of, Ex- of evidence and Michael Heiser's podcast are, are a couple resources I'd point you to. But as we as we look at this book, it has forty chapters, and we could say that it kind of divides into two halves. Chapters one through eighteen reveal to us kind of and speak of the Exodus and ultimately the time in the wilderness. And then chapters 19 through 40 land at the events of Mount Sinai, specifically the giving of the law and the uh, instructions for the creation of the tabernacle. So they're kind of the two main divisions of the book. But as I've been kind of giving some background information here, you may be sitting there asking the question, why Exodus? There are a lot of things happening right now in our world, that seem more important, right? Why are we going to spend weeks and weeks studying a book that I just told you is over 3,000 years old? Maybe if you're a Bible nerd, this stuff is interesting to you. Like when were Pithom and Ramses built? And was this a person or a place? And you know, is there an anachronism in the naming of it here? But for most of us, you may be sitting there saying, isn't this stuff just kind of irrelevant? After all, we're a lot closer to the New Testament, and the, the, the things that were there, it seems a lot easier to understand, it seems like uh, just a lot more practical for us, so, so why don't we just kind of stick there? You know, we're in the midst of some crazy times in our world, so, so why don't we address some of these other issues, like, you know fear and anxiety amidst a pandemic, or issues of, you know, of, of racism and social justice, and, and surely there are more pressing topics than us spending weeks and weeks in this ancient Jewish text. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you with the words that Jesus and Paul gave to us. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' resurrection, he encountered these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as he talked with them, they were, they were trying to figure out what just happened. And ultimately, Jesus kind of reveals himself to them. And then it tells us that this is what Jesus did. It says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said, all this stuff that Moses wrote actually has to do with me. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, namely the whole of the Old Testament, even the book of Exodus. And Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians 10 and he said, hey, I, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. And he said this, that our fathers were all under the cloud, they passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. Paul is just unpacking the events of the Exodus, and then this is what he says about it. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, they were recorded, they were preserved for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So Exodus was actually given and written for us today. If we want to know how to live in the end of the age, then we would do well to look back to God's work in his people in the book of Exodus. In Romans 15, Paul again says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So the reason we are, we are diving into Exodus is for our instruction. It's to see how this story that God has written has, has played out throughout human history. Ultimately, ultimately, settles in on the work of Jesus and calls us to see it, to look at all of this, to see this God, and how he has worked in history to accomplish his purposes, to create a people for himself. And in doing that, as we see these things, the ultimate result is our Christian hope. We're studying this to give us hope. My wife and I are... Approach, we, I've learned over the years that, that we approach things in life very differently. And depending on the day, that either makes us a really good complementary team or creates a lot of conflict. But uh, one of the things that, that we're very different in is just how we kind of uh, approach maybe solving problems or, or things that, that break. And uh, I am very much, for some reason, like I, w- I wanna figure it out, I wanna understand how it, how it works and, and the, the intricacies of it and, and, and how, to, how, to, how to fix it. My wife is more like, I just want it to work. I just want it to do what it's supposed to do. And even a few weeks ago, she, she called me on the phone and said she was about to go on a bike ride with the kids. And one of the kids' tires was, was stuck and, and wasn't, wasn't working on the brakes. And so she called me, she's like, what do, what do I do? And I began to kind of explain to her kind of how the brakes work and, and how you, you, know, you see that lever there and you need to kind of pull that that cable comes down, you got she's like, no, 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 I, just tell me what to do to, to fix it. I just want it to work so I can leave and go on this ride. I'm like, well, if you figure out how it works, then, then, you, could, then you could fix it. But, uh, and uh, if, if, if it sounds like I think my way is the only way and is, is right, my wife has certainly saved us a lot of time because her way is much more efficient. I've wasted many days uh, trying to figure something out when I could have called somebody and just had them fix it or tell me how to. But uh, oftentimes, I think what, sometimes we come to the scriptures. And we, we ask of it, hey, just, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just, just tell me, how, you know, at the end of the day, I just need a practical guide. I just, I just need it to work for me. And, and I think that's not how the scriptures were written. As we look at these Old Testament books, we want that quick just, oh, what am I supposed to do? But they were intended for us to, to, to meditate on, to go back to over and over as a community to see and to look at God of His his works and His ways, to actually be be, be shaped and changed as as, as a people, to where that practical outworking will actually take place as we're changed and formed by His Word, as we reflect on who God is and what He has done and who He calls us to be. And as we see how the Bible fits together, how this narrative weaves together this beautiful story of God's redemptive love for this world we will be changed in a far deeper way than if we just ask it to give us practical principles so as we walk through this book there may be times where we're just called to reflect on an attribute of God of, of wrestle through you know, how, how he has worked through a different time and a season but our goal is to see how this story, coming out and out, connected with Genesis, continues to unfold this great redemptive drama that is the Bible. So that's how I want to set our course. Now as we move on, I want to, I want to fix for us some guides. I want to fix our guides for us as we walk through this. And, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of kind of, you know, if you're in a mountain uh, trail area Maybe in an area where because of such few traffic or because of it's, it's too rocky, rather than seeing a path, someone may mark a path with those rock cairns. You'll see those, those rocks stacked up that will mark the path, will mark the way. And As we walk through Exodus, there's going to be things like that that we see over and over again that kind of mark this pathway for us. Reflections of who God is and what he has done. What are these themes that we see in these patterns that will be set for us over and over again? And there's, there's far more, but I just want to lay out a few for us. One of the first ones that we will see and establish is God's providence. We see God's providence over and over throughout this book. We see it very early on, even in the next chapters, when Pharaoh, who seeks to use the the Nile River as a means of destruction and death, God, in his providence, uses it as a means of saving life and ultimately leading a nation out of captivity. We see God in the way that he providentially uses Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, ultimately leading his people out of Egypt. We see the way that God providentially leads and provides for his people through their wandering in the wilderness. Over and over again, we see the providence of God taking place and at work in the lives of the nation of Israel. Another thing that we see is the presence of God. We see this especially uh, pertinent in, in, in the burning bush. We see it later on on Mount Sinai. And you're confronted with this issue of how, how can a, a, a sinful people dwell with a holy God. We see it then in the, in the establishment of the tabernacle. That way in which God visibly came to dwell with his people. We see this theme of God's presence. We see this issue of the name of God come up over and over again. As as Moses stands before the burning bush and he's sent on this mission, what does he he say? He says, God, who should I tell him that sent me? God declares his name. says, I am have sent you. So we'll look at the name of God. We will continue to see God's covenant faithfulness, something that we traced all throughout the book of Genesis. God's covenant faithfulness, his provision for his people in the wilderness through manna, his protection of them at the Red Sea. His faithfulness to them in establishing the Mosaic covenant with them, giving them his law. But amidst all of that, I do think that there is this central theme that we will see throughout this book. And that central theme of redemption. Exodus, at its most basic level, is a story of liberation from bondage. And the Exodus event is the pivotal event in Israel's history. It is that capstone event for all of Israel's history that the prophets and so many later writers would point Israel back to. In the songs, we all see them saying and, and calling them back to remember the Exodus. That time in which God gathered them and formed them as his people. This point and, and, and moment of redemption. And we will track this theme of God's redemption throughout this book. And these themes and these patterns will guide us on this journey. But now with the little time that we have left, I just want to launch into these first few verses as we set the stage here. So we launch into our journey. In verses 1 to 7, we, we're called to remember where we've come from. The book of Exodus, in the original language, begins with the Hebrew conjunction, and. It's a great way to start a book, right? With And. But this serves to connect Exodus with the closing of Genesis. It's been nearly a year since we were in Genesis, so do you remember how it ended? As you know, we, there's this large section of, of Joseph's journey towards Egypt, his, 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 his captivity in Egypt, and then his rise to power as, as a leader and a governor in Egypt. We see the famine that comes and then brings the rest of his family, and there's this reunion in Egypt with Joseph and his brothers. And at the end of chapter in Genesis chapter 50, it says that Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph then said to his brothers, He said, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. They embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. So, even amidst Joseph's death, Genesis closes with this promise of hope, right? That Egypt is not Israel's final home, but is merely a stopping point. God is going to bring them up out of this land, and He's going to settle them in the land of promise. This is what Joseph told to his brothers. So then Exodus begins with the same lines of Genesis 46, 8, when he says, And these are the names of the sons of Israel. We've heard that before in Genesis. He's connecting this story with the story of Genesis. And he's calling us to look back and remember God's covenant faithfulness. But then in verse 6, it tells us that Joseph dies, which, of course, we already knew. But then what else does it tell us? Kind of surprising. It says, guess who else died? All his brothers, you know, the ones that were supposed to get his bones and carry him up? Well, they died. In fact, the entire first generation dies in Egypt. It's kind of a bummer, right? It's kind of like when you're, you're, you're watching like a TV series and they kill off one of your favorite characters. They're like, come on, I, I love that one. Here, we, we've been tracing this family through the book of Genesis. They're the key characters. We get to this point and they all died down in Egypt. That wasn't supposed to happen, was it? But then verse 7 quickly gives us this renewed hope. It says that the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong in the land. And the land was filled with them. Does that remind you of something that you've read before? Right? It should take you back to Genesis chapter 1. The original creation mandate as these newly formed image bearers were were called to to go forth to to multiply and to fill the earth, to be the very reflection of God in this world. And here in Exodus, we're getting a glimpse that that God is still on a mission to do that. They grew and they multiplied. It should take us back to, to Genesis 12 even, where God said that he would bring forth from Abraham a great nation. So here at the start of Exodus, we see the continuing outworking of God's original mission. And he is going to do this through this people, no matter what powers may come against his plan. But then we're confronted with a rather shocking situation in the next verses. We're told that a new king arose in Egypt. Now, we don't necessarily know who this ruler is. That depends much on the date that you actually choose for the writing of the book and the time of the Exodus. Many different uh, specific Egyptian rulers have been set forth as, as both the, the Pharaoh during the time of the oppression and the time of the Exodus, but we're not sure. But what we do know is this, that this Pharaoh that comes to power, it's not like the next guy that just comes after the, the Pharaoh that Joseph was serving alongside of. Right? So it may sound shocking, like, oh, how did he forget about Joseph? It's not just the next guy. We have to realize that between verses 6 and 8, there are hundreds of years that pass. And just think about that. Hundreds of years. So that verse 8 is very much kind of a, a fast forward. Like one of those movies that you watch where you know it'll, it'll start with the scene of a young child and something pivotal happens, then it fades out. And then it comes back up to the next screen and it says, 30 years later, it's kind of what's going on here as they have died off. And now this, this new King comes, this has been hundreds of years of time that has passed in the establishment and the growth of of the nation in Egypt. But this new King, it says, did not know Joseph, meaning that the positive relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites from Joseph's time of governing had slowly faded out of memory. And so this new ruler sees this increasing number of foreigners and he has some concerns. He sees them as a potential threat to his rule and to the stability of Egypt. And so he develops a political strategy to keep the Israelites from gaining power from potentially allying with their with Egypt's enemies and even even leaving the land, he wants to keep Israel under his thumb and use them for his as his labor force. And so he enslaves the nation and forces them to work under the harsh rule of this tyrant. They set the Israelites to the task of making bricks, common in the in the in the Egyptian area. are These bricks made of of Clay mixed with, with uh, straw. They're baked in the sun. They, they, they form very hard, long-lasting building materials. And these, some of these, these structures have lasted for, for thousands of years. And the Israelites are set to making these bricks and then to, to furthermore building and helping build and construct these different areas, these, these places of Pithom and Ramses. We don't know if that's a reference to the, the, time, the, the name of those cities at the time of the actual uh, judgment and the slavery of Egypt or whether that's something that was just designated later. But the, this ancient slave labor was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. When one people group would oppress another, they would use them as their, as their labor force, which is how many of the, the ancient landmarks uh, were built over the years. But the language that's used here reiterates over and over the difficulty of their circumstances. It says that they were afflicted with heavy burdens. They oppressed them. They made their lives bitter. That bitterness will later be picked up and commemorated in the Passover and the eating of bitter herbs. It says that they made them work in making bricks and do work in the field. They had hard service, all kinds of work, and they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Over and over, it just repeats this, the atrocities and the the difficulty with which they were enslaved. So Israel is presented as a people with no rights and complete bondage and suffering under whatever Egypt wishes. They were fully enslaved to whatever Egypt wanted. And let me just say that slavery has been a reality throughout human history. It's been present within human civilization ultimately since the fall, but it has always been an affront to the God-given dignity and value of human beings who are made in God's image. And those who have been freed by the gospel should be those who seek to destroy slavery in all of its forms, whether that's ethnic slavery, forms of human trafficking, or even the spiritual slavery that we have all been held under. But I believe that it is the atrocious nature of slavery that allows it to be used and to be picked up as a symbol that points to the spiritual realities of redemption and ultimately points us to the fact that freedom is God's ultimate design for humanity. And so despite these terrible circumstances, even in this place, we see glimpses of this unwavering commitment of God. Despite all of Pharaoh's attempts to oppress this people, to control them, what happens? It says that they continue to multiply, even under terrible conditions, brutal labor. It says that God allowed them to continue to multiply, to be strengthened. And this frustrates the Pharaoh. He's he's trying to hold them down, but as, as much as he tries, something is happening that they are just flourishing. It says that ultimately the Egyptians were in dread of the Israelites. Something was different about this people. There was something with them. And God continues to show that he will take the worst of circumstances and still work out his purposes. You know, in these first verses, it's almost as if God is absent as you read it. It's not until much later in in chapter 2 that it says the people cried out. Almost as if the people have forgotten about Yahweh for these hundreds of years. And in this time, and even though the the people may have, have in some sense forgotten about God, God has not forgotten about her. So as we kind of wrap things up here at just this introduction place and we see the nation of Israel in this terrible condition, this condition of slavery, we need to remember what God had told to Abraham way back in Genesis. This is what he said in Genesis 15. He said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This promise of God still stands, and we're going to see that in the coming chapters. This slavery did not surprise God. God it has been part of his providential plan to bring about the redemption of his people and to display his glory to the world. And God is firmly committed to his covenant promises, and we will see this in the unfolding chapters. And that should give us hope and confidence no matter the times that we may find ourselves living in. So as we walk through this book, let me just encourage you with something. Let us remember That this book is first and foremost a story about God and about his mission of redemption. But it is also a narrative that we see ourselves in. So, the question that we'll, we'll face over and over throughout this is Do you see the Exodus as a paradigm of your life? As we work through this book, we must always keep in mind that we look back to these events through the story of the cross. And in light of that, we can see how so much of the events and the things that were happening here were pointing forward to much greater realities that we see in fullness. As Exodus is a story of redemption for bondage, we should be reminded of our condition apart from Christ. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, that we were slaves to sin. We are in complete bondage to sin. And apart from God, we are left in that bondage, that bondage of our own desires and our own futile attempts to find freedom. And maybe you've wrestled with that in your life, throughout your life. Maybe even now you're continuing to wrestle with that. How can I find freedom? How can I fulfill my ultimate desires? And we look for them in so many different places. We look for that in that freedom in in relationships. We may look for it in adventure. We may look for it in sex, in success, in power, in our intellect. But maybe you've experienced that the more you try to find it in those things, the more that those things actually enslave you. And those things become a brutal taskmaster in our lives. Have you realized the pattern in your life that when you turn away from God like the Israelites in stubborn rebellion, failure to trust that God is with you, that he will be faithful, that he will provide, do you ever feel that tendency to say, I want to go back to Egypt? I had it better there. I, I, I think God's got this, this totally wrong. I'm going to find my own way. And if you experience that that ultimately only leads to a confused season of wandering. When we fail to fear God, and then we turn towards other idols, and we set up other things in our lives as things to worship, we realize that it will only lead to death and destruction. Have you seen that pattern in your life? And have you turned to the one that can only truly deliver you? Have you realized that it's only by the blood of the lamb that is put over the doorposts of your house that you can actually have protection from death and then be set forward into a path of exodus, a path of freedom? This is the story of exodus. and We're going we're, we're gonna to walk through these themes and see this imagery over and over again. And I hope it continually comes back to reveal to us That the story of Israel, as we look back through Jesus, is ultimately the story of what God has done in Christ to redeem a people for himself. And we can see ourselves in all these patterns. It's only as we look to Jesus, that faithful lamb, that ultimately can give us victory over sin, freedom from bondage, and a life of freedom in following and serving and loving the good rule and reign of Yahweh let's pray today as we look forward to embarking on this journey together in the coming weeks. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this story that you have have preserved for us. How it points us to these greater realities of your desire to redeem us from the slavery of sin. Pray that we would be a people who never forget what you have done throughout history that we would not merely just look for practical wisdom but that we would look to be changed by it to see the God who loves us, who who has been running after us from the beginning so let us be a people who have been brought into relationship with you who have been freed from sin and now are actually slaves to righteousness so guide us in this journey, let your word change us let it shape us And ultimately, let your name go forth uh, into this world, into our hearts and into our community. It's in the great name of our Savior that I pray. Amen.